Laura. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. And in this episode, we're saying goodnight to the bad guy. We're remaking Scarface with Roman Suwila Martinez and KC. So, KC, Roman, is Scarface a movie that has been, should be, or will be remade? It is a remake. There's a 1932 Scarface and then the 83 Al Pacino Scarface. And they've tried yeah, to make a, a lot of new times. one, huh? Are they I making know, a new one? Well, yes, but they've said that like every year for the last 20 years, so we'll see. Yeah. This is definitely one of those popular movies that it's like, well, we can do that again, right? Mob movies are always popular. Probably not the right time to make a mob movie, but... Yeah. Yeah, I saw that the latest iteration is penned by the Coen brothers and being directed by Luca Guadagnino. So uh, that's what's currently they think is happening. And I butchered, butchered that last name, probably. You no, did your best, and I appreciate it. Luca, Suspiria, etc. Mm-hmm. Call me by your name, you know. I mean, well, that that's a close. good pitch. I mean, I don't have any of those people, but great. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, luckily, neither do I, but I did want to check it I out mean, just those in are, like, case. Some of my, like, probably last choices, probably. It's, Fair. It's a whole different direction, for sure. I mean... I guess, so I guess part of the question, the, part of the place to begin is what inspired you both to pick this movie? Like, why are we talking about Scarface today? Well, I find a lot of interest in it because when I was growing up uh, in high school and being Latino, a lot of my friends, you know, had Scarface shirts and posters and it's everywhere. And especially in a community of people who really like rap music, uh, Scarface is, you know, huge in the rap community as well. So just a lot of my friends were very into it and I was personally very against it because I was very anti-drug when I was younger and being Latino, I wasn't interested in the stereotypical like drug lord perception. Even at a young age, I was like, don't loop me in with these, you know, you know, hooligans, I guess. But the, the reason that I wanted to do it when you put it up is I just thought, man, I haven't seen it since I was young and I had also not seen any Pacino prior to Scarface when I saw Scarface for the first time. And since then, I've seen a ton of Pacino. (laughs) So I thought it would be interesting to revisit. And then especially uh, me being half Mexican as well, I was just curious to see how things for uh, Latino representation would feel maybe different now that I've had more time uh, between. I mean, does this movie count as Latino representation when the main title character is playing a Latino person, but is not himself Latino. Yes. I mean, that's the, and that's the problem with things like brown face is that it still is representation, even though it is inauthentic at best. Right. Um, And that, that is kind of the interesting thing that we were talking about and learning about as we went through our Scarface research and stuff is (laughs) it kind of was the first movie or at least big movie that, uh, had a Latino like hero. I mean, he's an anti-hero, but the protagonist, the hero, the guy that you like, it's played by a movie star. So I think it was kind of, it, it's kind of, 
seems like most, I mean, everybody has a different perspective, but a lot of Latino communities, especially at the time, really embrace it. And we're like, yeah, we're on the map, you know, kind of mm-hmm. uh, like this guy is cool. And that's our, our representation right now. So, yeah, I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to then see also the future of that probably of being like, and now forever Latinos are just drug lords and that's about it in movies and TV. So, yeah, I would say that part of that is, uh, you know, there's a perception at the time where it's like, uh, you know, for Cubans in Miami, it's like, Hey, we're, we're on screen and the biggest move, like this great movie starts playing us. Like, it's awesome. Like we love having somebody cool be associated with us, but the problematic part of that representation, especially now we understand is like, there's almost no excuse to cast somebody who's not from a certain, you know, background because you, you know, now everybody's, we're aware of everybody, they're accessible and it would make sense to get yeah. a Cuban to play a Cuban, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't think it's necessarily, if you, if you treat the movie just as a piece of art and remove that, like, if you remove it as it is i guess yeah the Mm -hmm. contextual implication see it more like a mythology where where almost you know whoever whatever actor plays that character it's just more about what the character represents and does i think that pacino is a great choice it's just it's safe for the fact that he's not (laughs) yeah yeah well and that's i guess so for me part of the reason that i picked this is well the funny thing is i actually picked this because i'd never seen it before which That's is a great reason because I've seen a lot of movies. So it's kind of weird that I miss Scarface somewhere in there. I've seen a lot, a lot of movies and that one just, I had never seen before. So I was excited to kind of check it out. And of course I'd seen tons and tons of like clips and stuff, but that, and then it, it's obvious that it needs at least a imaginary remake in that what happens when you don't, do this with brown face you know yeah um but there were i i don't know exactly why it was i mean i guess it should be in some ways obvious but for a lot of years it was deemed acceptable to like use latinos and italians interchangeably you know what i mean yeah yeah there's like in the spaghetti westerns and stuff there was american westerns and i remember i was at uh hebrew high growing up and there was a girl there who was Israeli and she said that the perception about what she was depend differed depending on what area of the country she was in. Like when she was in Florida, people just assumed she was Cuban, even though she's Israeli, she's in mm-hmm. uh, Texas or Arizona. People assume she's Mexican, even though she's Israeli. And it's just like that judging a book by its cover very much, but yeah. Right. White people not knowing anything or whatever, but uh Yes. In Hollywood, we call that ethnically ambiguous. Yes. And it's trendy. Yes. I will say I also remember that this movie is actually your second choice, because I think I was at a Halloween party uh, of yours two or three. I mean, obviously not last year, but at least two years ago. And I remember you were both upset with me because I'd already remade Barbarella, Queen of the Galaxy. Yes. Yes. So apologies that we had to settle for number two. I mean, yeah, it's just so funny. surprising that you'd get to Barbarella in like season one or two. Like that <laughs> it was what like Claire wanted. Seven kind of thing, you know what I mean? Um, the, the real tragedy is that we fought Claire on it. Uh, the other, my two guests <laughs> for that episode are Claire and Brad, and Brad and I both were like, "Are you sure you want to talk about this?" And Claire was like, "Yes," and just like the courage of her conviction was just like, "All right, we'll talk about this movie." And well, then of course, 
we feel bad because it's like, oh no, other people wanted to talk about it too. And it's like, but it's in one of those movies that I hadn't seen. So, but I'm now so much more aware of it in popular culture and even just Jane Fonda yeah. in general. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to go down a Barbarella. Oh, I don't want to go down a Barbarella hole. Is that how I want to word that? Yeah. Yes, it is. Barbarella would approved. be proud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we go uh, too deep into Scarface, uh, why don't you both tell me a little bit about yourselves? Just so the audience knows who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, my name's Roman, and together with KC, we're the founders of Film Reframed, which is an online uh, film education platform where we teach composition and visual storytelling, uh, because we find that that particular subject matter is something that's under-instructed on in film schools, and that professionals on film sets seem to know how to execute strong compositions and visual storytelling, but they don't have a language to express that they don't have the vocabulary to express that to other people on their team. So there's a big gap on professional sets of people not being able to explain why or how they're making certain compositional decisions. And there is a big gap in film education where uh, filmmakers aren't taught to look at storytelling from that particular angle. So uh, leaving out a key component of cinematic storytelling. Absolutely. And particularly as films go more towards naturalism, and things being motivated by, you know, natural light sources. And this is the way that the environment would feel or look or sound. Like the more we go towards realism, the more there is, I think, a uh, mindset in the creation of film that we're more documenting something and less creating something, if that makes sense. So you, like, you create an environment and then you document it. But what's lost in that is the intentionality of composition and visual storytelling that you can create a stronger narrative if you put, place something onto what's already occurring. So film has this, this ability to heighten narratives. And I, I think we're losing that with a uh, generation of filmmakers who are used to documenting or capturing. So we're looking at creating rather than capturing, if that makes sense. Uh, and I think that uh, we're very passionate about it uh, because we care a lot about movies. And that's why we're here on ideal remake is because we care a lot about the stories that shape all of our lives. So how does Scarface do on film composition? Great. Excellent. There are some great compositions in Scarface. Absolutely. Do you yeah, have a, pro- do you have a favorite shot? I, pun not intended. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I would love to pick my favorite gunshot from Scarface. That'd be great. <laughs> but I, I would say, Oh man, I bet I could. I bet you could also. There's a great composition. Um, one that stands out to me is when they're going to make that, that deal with the guys in the apartment that ambush them and eventually the chainsaws in that scene. Yeah. There's the moment where things are turning and that the ambush is, is taking this turn. There's a shot of his friend standing outside the door uh, of the apartment. And then an arm comes from the, the side of the frame the with the gun. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, it's a great reveal because it comes from seemingly nowhere, right? There's like the, the balcony, like the banister to the stairs is there. So you wouldn't expect the gun to come from there but also compositionally just really shows how unaware everyone is that that's about to happen. It's outside yeah. the apartment. It's behind the character and the composition does a good job highlighting that. So that's probably I, one of my favorite ones. Yeah, no, I noticed that one too. And I think that you kind of nailed it as to why I feel like we've gotten really bad at reveals in storytelling and TV and movies. Like I can always see it from a mile away and, and I think it's stuff like that, that it's like, it's not taken into account in the like composition and edit for some reason, that it's just like, Oh, you didn't see this coming. 
as far as plot goes. So it is a surprise and it's like, that's, that's only part of the experience. Yeah. I will say also that film is shot uh, or particularly that scene, the scene where they go from the car to the apartment is shot on a long lens. And it's this great tracking shot of them on a long lens. It follows them across the street, up the stairs, around to the the actual door of the apartment. And the uh just the technical execution of that is brilliant but every moment God, within that tracking shot, that shot oh man <laughs> it's beautiful and it reveals so much information about context uh you just don't realize how powerful the scene in the apartment is because we saw the outside and we saw everything that's happening around the apartment and we saw the the billboard signs and we saw the the bustling street and we saw how removed this particular apartment is from the street, even though it's right off the the sidewalk, like having that moment to follow them in gives you so much contextual information that then when the scene takes place inside the apartment and that ambush goes totally crazy, it's just way more informed. So to just have all that versus just doing close-ups or or seeing their feet walk up the stairs or something like that, you know, it's a whole experience of going in. And And in terms of editing pacing too, there's that very long moment. And then when things go down then everything's very 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 fast yeah yeah that's cool i like it good answer cool so uh casey do you remember the first time so you you watched scarface for the first time for this podcast what do you think i i liked it i i thought it was pretty fun i i didn't anticipate to not like it but i knew it was i mean it's camp and i think it's great camp you know to to barbarella's (laughs) point right (laughs) i remember I was at a stand-up comedy, like a teeny tiny stand-up comedy show in LA in some alt sort of location and someone was working out jokes and he was talking about how he grew up Mormon and uh, so he was working out this joke about how he's like really outside of pop culture uh, because he didn't have all that stuff growing up and he had examples like, for instance, he's like, I've never seen Citizen Kane, I've never seen... Godfather, I've never seen Scarface, and we all laughed. And uh, one guy in particular just like got up and laughed and just like laughed in his face. And, like, you can't compare Scarface to the Godfather. Like, and uh, <laughs> and it's funny because I, I knew what he was getting at, right? That that's like just as prevalent a classic, but that also like Scarface isn't the you know literary artistry i guess of the godfather it's uh it's a it's a fun and games movie for the most part right it's uh yeah it's it's just pulpy and campy and there's no character development and it's all about boobs and guns and stuff and that can be all right sometimes and i think it's one i think it's executed well in that's what it is that makes sense that's yeah, interesting. My first experience with this movie is, uh, so this is how I'm going to win a bunch of friends. I was an RA in college. Um, <laughs> and uh, one of the things that RAs have to do is they have to go around and do room inspections. And like, especially like before breaks, make sure nothing's broken, everything's fine. You go to all around to all these like different college student rooms and you just see poster after poster after poster. And you see the same Dark Side of the Moon posters, and you see a bunch of Scarface <laughs> posters, you see a bunch of Fight Club posters. And, oh, and so my first experience with Scarface is just seeing it in dorm after dorm after dorm, just Scarface posters. 
and uh, we did some play in college where someone like did the line, like, you want to mess with me? Okay. Say hello to my little friend. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect now, after having seen the movie, this is the second time I've watched the movie. Um, that guy's about to die, but that's when we're glorifying him. Fine. But mm-hmm. uh, so when I first moved to LA, I kind of made a point of like going and seeing, not going and seeing, getting from Netflix DVDs to watch all these famous movies. So I watched Citizen Kane for the first time. I watched, Dr. Strangelove, which is uh, the previous episode to this one. And I watched Scarface that way. And this kind of broad sense of masculinity, it, I've never loved this movie. Um, I've always thought this movie is like, like a good time capsule of like the kind of filmmaking at the time. And it's obviously strong character work, strong acting choices. It, it's not a character that appeals to me, but I'm neither part of this culture nor have any desire to be that kind of like, yeah, big man. It just doesn't work for me. But it's one of those movies that I think is really, really interesting to talk about. And having watched it now again this week uh, for this podcast, I kind of still feel the same way of like, huh, I want to talk about all these little aspects and this, these little details in it. But obviously like yeah. that you could do a whole film series about it, but we're not gonna. <laughs> But we could. Um, just in terms. We, we could, but like, I mean, who's got the time? Us, but that's not important. <laughs> uh, but like, it's one of those movies that I agree with your f- Mormon and or formerly Mormon friend that I do think this is a movie that needs to be seen just because it establishes so much and so much that like it was such a a movie of the moment that so much that comes after it can't help but be influenced by it. Yeah, just because as you were saying earlier, the 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 nature of the uh, the Hispanic drug lord. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I got a time capsule type feeling to it, and you know, even more than like time capsule, like uh, this little kind of culture nugget capsule. Like you can't. It's it's kind of this weird thing. You can't understand American culture, and I guess like I've learned. Latina American culture without Scarface and its influence on pop culture going forward and people's understanding of things like masculinity and Cubans and <laughs> things like that going forward. Yeah, I will say I read a uh, article. I read an article in uh, Remezcla, which talks about to Cubans in Miami as a retrospective of Scarface and saying, well, what did you think of this? And they interview uh, a good subsection of people on their perspectives. And uh, somebody had a great insight, which I thought was funny. He said that um, it's almost like Cubans in Miami didn't talk like uh, the way that Tony Montana talks until after Scarface came out. And then everybody started talking like that. So it's kind of uh, funny that a um, something that could be viewed as like a over-exaggerated parody of a Cuban accent then becomes the real Cuban accent because there's a, a popular reference point for Cubans themselves and, and their place. Um, and, and he said that, uh, you know, at that point in time that uh, Cubans in Miami were being viewed as, you know, you, you viewed as the janitor or something like that. But then Scarface comes out and it's like, well, at least now people see me as uh, powerful yeah. and, <laughs> and as a leader and as a, you know, as Pacino, something formidable. Like, yeah, yeah. Which is like, maybe not as, we can kind of understand now, but Al Pacino in 1983, like that's, he's a huge movie star and not only a movie star, but a prestige actor and the star of like the biggest movie 
of kind of all movies, which is still pretty recent memory. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I understand why there's a lot of pride there, right? Yeah, I mean, he's he's the guy who's eventually going to go on and be in Jack and Jill. He needs our respect. Exactly. I like doing that kind of pull where you're like, oh yeah, you know that actor Al Pacino? Yeah, that guy from Jack and Jill. Like you're like to just to pull to cherry pick the least relevant sampling of their filmography yeah. and make them that guy. I like, oh, yeah, or I like to that. find the early stuff too. The you know when you find somebody's work that you're like, oh man, when they were still paying the bills, kind of thing, and there's something. <laughs> ridiculous they have to do or something it's like oh, you yes. know al pacino Lakers. star of cruising yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes precisely yep. i yep. we had to watch cruising for uh, the movie club i'm in and i've been able to reference it recently and it's like it's a bad movie but like for different reasons than what you might think um but <laughs> that's oh, man. but yeah okay good that's interesting because i was gonna ask about the accent because part of me was like is this a caricature accent? Is this accent itself racist? But it sounds like if it's like, there's something to be said for representation and just like having someone on screen, especially of this stature. And especially at that time. I was going to say when the, the movie came on again, not having seen it in a long time, the very first scene where he's speaking to uh, some of the like uh, police or immigration or whomever Mm -hmm. is kind of like interrogating him there at the beginning. Uh, I was I just started laughing and I couldn't stop laughing because I re- because I really liked it and I really That's like good. at the same time it just went in between being incredibly accurate and incredibly inaccurate and then back and forth yeah. to, to a degree that I would not I would not claim it as as good or bad I would just say that if like let's imagine a world where there was no like sense of Cubanness or no sense of like any different uh, race or ethnicity. Like if all humans were just humans, the voice he's doing in that movie is very compelling, interesting. And I want to hear him say stuff. Yeah. But yeah. When, when right. it has to then become representational, that's when you start to go, Oh, or Hmm, or whatever. But <laughs> just, just from a enjoyment standpoint, I really like what he's doing. I like the performance a lot. I think it's great. Yeah. And I found that it seemed like it- it struck me right away because of all the clips and stuff. It's, it's pretty like silly and over the top in some ways. But like, even in that first scene, I was like, actually, this is pretty good. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm not a dialect expert, so I don't know the difference between like Cuban and Puerto Rican or probably even Cuban and Mexican very well. But, uh, but I was like, that's pretty convincing. And to that point with the strong character choices with it being Al Pacino, it's like Al Pacino isn't what an American sounds like. Right. You know, like, <laughs> so who's to say that that's not what like that, that accent's bad even. Right. Because he yeah. talks strange. He, he talks in a very distinctive way that is kind of slurred and muddy in a fun charactery way. And that's going to affect the accent anyway. And it's hard to maybe criticize yeah. that as well. I don't know. Maybe that's too much better for the doubt. But um, I thought that I thought that in some scenes it was kind of crude, but that in a lot of scenes it was actually pretty good. Well, and, and right. in building a mythological character, you want an iconic voice regardless. So, like, I think part of the reason it has a stature it has is because that voice is part of it. Whether it's good it or is- bad or whatever, it's there. And right. it's... Memorable. No matter what else, it's memorable. 
Yes. Yeah. Just like his performance in Jack and Jill. The, <laughs> uh, Oscar winning. Which, which I've actually Oscar. never seen. I've never seen Jack and Jill, but I did see his performance in Jack and Jill, and it is haunting. Um, <laughs> but that might just be because I was there. <laughs> One of my first jobs in LA is I did background on that movie, and I'm in background That's in hilarious. that scene. It's very strange. Um, but in terms of what we're going to do, because we're here to remake this movie, and I feel like sometimes when we're doing remakes, it's going in and kind of fixing the problems of the movie. The example I always use is 16 candles, which is a problem. Mm -hmm. This movie, there are certainly problems in this movie that I think need to be fixed. And we'll get into that a little bit, but I think more we're looking at a modern adaptation, right? Unless you two are thinking that we would also set this as a period piece or just make this movie again, but make it now with better film techniques and whatever. Oh yeah. That's always my approach. I think that rarely should you contempt, like bring it to contemporary age because most stories don't survive that. Oh, so you, you would want this to be set in, when was this movie set? The eighties, early eighties. Yeah. Uh, so you, you all, you want our remake to also be set in the eighties. My remake is the eighties yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, Roman, were you thinking the same? Um, I would say that, one of the interesting things about this narrative is that it plays, uh, there's so little actual dialogue. There's so little actual character development. However, there is a lot of understanding that we see in kind of a movie that happens between the lines that fills out a mythology and a cultural mythology that I believe, even though it is uniquely American and uniquely eighties, I do think that uh, those core beats could be uh, pulled along a timeline and, and still function. However, my personal take on this as well was uh, I think the 80s is a relevant time to us now, if that makes sense. So, like, I think the 80s is contemporary to us now in the sense that we're learning lessons of things from the 80s currently. And so it's easier to look back on the past and have learned something about it because you have distance. Whereas because the film was made in the time it was made, it maybe didn't have that perspective. perspective. So I think the perspective that a 2020 person could take a 2021 person could take on a 1980s story is maybe even more valuable than making a 2020 story because then we're not going to have perspective on our own time. So with this particular story, I was thinking short answer. I was thinking of doing it in the eighties as well. Generally in for most episodes, I would actually disagree with you. I think oftentimes the purpose of a remake is if it was a movie in the eighties about the eighties, it did that already and to do it retrospectively doesn't necessarily work. And I think for a lot of different movies, like certainly for last episode, Dr. Strangelove, I think it's important to make that movie now because making it as a retrospective for then that movie exists. And sure. Well, that one is strictly political. Yeah. So it doesn't. So that's one that I would probably agree that if you're going to remake it at all, it doesn't make any sense to make a political statement about the sixties. Right. That's true too. But but largely, I feel like if it's a movie made about the time you're in, like presently, you continue to make it a movie about the time you're in. Cell phones be damned. However, I think Scarface in particular is a rare example of a movie that I also would set in the 80s for two reasons. One, the opening crawl of the movie is, hey, there's a sudden influence of Cuban refugees mm-hmm. coming into Florida, and it's causing this demographic shift and that this is kind of the story of one of those people. And I think that's important because that's literally background. And also 
I'm not aware of current drug markets and um, drug things that are happening, but unless he's going to be the kingpin of Tide Pods, if you want someone to be the kingpin of cocaine, the 80s were really the time for that. I agree. It's, it's representational of that, uh, that cocaine did peak in the 80s. And it's, I, I feel not, like that... far from gone, but uh, it definitely yeah. had its heyday. And while I don't think Scarface necessarily needs to be tied to cocaine, there's a reason why this remake is kind of, in a way, an ideal remake of the original version from 1932, which none of us have seen. I assume. I'm jumping to a conclusion. Have either of you seen it? I did not watch it. I didn't. Cool. Neither did I. I didn't want to. Seemed like homework. (laughs) That, like, to the point where it has kind of supplanted the original, but it also takes kind of the idea of the original of just a, hey, gangster, and does it in a way that I think, at the time, modernized the movie. I think if we're paying tribute to the, the, the movie that people know, if we're talking about remaking Scarface, then mm-hmm. I think we need to remake the Scarface people know. Because otherwise, it's it's not this movie. This movie is so in, yes. indelibly yeah. implanted in people's heads. I think we need to start here, remake this movie as it is, and in doing so, then try to kind of fix some of the problems that over time it has developed. Like it's representation problem. Yes. It's I totally agree. I misogyny that, problem. And, and I think uh, that is um, a big part of the reason why I thought it was a good one to remake is because it, it's kind of in that perfect spot of being something that has a lot of gems about it and a lot of great concepts and has a lot to bring to the table and has a lot to be desired and a lot of things that need to be fixed at the same time. Right. That it's not, um, it, you know, since it isn't the Godfather, um, there is still, there's definitely an opportunity to, uh, make it better. Um, instead of just for starters, hacky, this is Florida we're talking about. Don't fly a blimp over Florida that says the world is yours. That's just basic. Anyone who knows (laughs) anything about Florida shouldn't do that. Absolutely. Uh, we know that now. <laughs> I do think this movie is a great, uh, the thing that you need to leave in there and the thing that is still culturally relevant is uh, hanging somebody by the neck from an airplane or a helicopter, helicopter. is Absolutely. Uh, something that we still need instruction on how 100%. to do now. It's something that a lot of people don't know how to do. And this movie shows it in a seamless, no cuts. You just drop them out of the helicopter. We need, we need lessons like that. So. Yeah, that, it's that an impressive scene because in the two minutes between when he when uh, F. Murray Abraham <laughs> leaves I know. And, <laughs> and walks down the stairs, they have beaten the shit out of F. F. Murray Abraham <laughs> and have him in this helicopter ready to go. Yeah, it's amazing. You're almost like, wait, wasn't he just behind him? Like, like what? Yeah. Like, yeah. Is he is he watching himself be hung right now? This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. seems like there, such a time jump. Uh, yep, yeah, there was some little. Timing yeah. there. F. Murray Abraham from the great show Mythic Quest. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. I've seen the first episode of Mythic Quest, and I won't get too far off the, the rails there. But, but uh, F. Murray there. Abraham does an excellent job. Yeah, yeah, he's interesting. It, 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 it kind of reads like he's he's too he's too good for the like the office that he's in in that show, but then he's also like too good for the show himself. Like he feels <laughs> like you almost get this sense that like he, he could play into that fake version of himself who's like, oh, I'm above this or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. He seems I, regal to me. 
I feel like I may have mentioned this in a previous episode, but I feel like watching the season of that show as it exists is worth it for two episodes that I think they execute nearly perfectly. There's an episode that's like entirely outside the continuity of the show called Dark Quiet Death, which I think is a perfect episode of television. Mm. And then they had the quarantine episode, which like the first episode that's filmed like kind of exclusively through Zoom. And I feel like those two episodes alone are worth watching the entire first season for. It's so good. Cool. I got to get back into it because I thought the pilot had a lot of promise and problems. And I was like, hmm, yeah. I should maybe maybe go further. But uh, anyway, yeah. Scarface, right? Yeah, Scarface. I think the show is fine. Those two episodes are perfect. But yes, Scarface. Um, so then let's talk about it. So let's talk. We're, we're remaking this movie. What are some things that... Let's start with the things to keep. What are the important elements of the movie as it exists now that, that you want to make sure stay in our version? Mm. Well, I think it's just uh, stay in the 80s. Other, <laughs> other than that. Right. I, I was going to say, I think that uh, having the the character that essentially embodies this idea of like a hollow pursuit, somebody who is desperate to achieve something that doesn't have any meaning to them or anyone else, like the, the ascent of the character is essentially that he gets involved in uh, this, this, uh, this, this pursuit that takes over his entire life. And yet while he's even in the midst of it, he's not being brought any joy from it. It's not fulfilling him in any way. It's, it's a, it's a cardboard cutout of a life. And so to me, having a character who is good at, um, shall we say like performing for other people, somebody who's good at like schmoozing and being charismatic and being fake with people to the degree that he, he even seems like he's faking himself out is very important to me, I think, in terms of the remake. So I think that's why Al Pacino's excellent is because he's good at putting on a facade and then you immediately get the sense that there's something going on behind that that even he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I'd want to preserve in the new version is it's got to be this hollow pursuit of the American dream. The character has to undergo this realization that like there is nothing here. I'm living a shell. And, and that's the tragedy is he's living a shell, but even he doesn't know the way out of it. So I, th- this may be going way past what I'm supposed <laughs> to be saying here, but essentially that's, that's like, if I could keep only one thing from Scarface, if you made me just pick one and everything else would change, that's the benefit of Scarface to me is it's a portrayal of a man who is, is living a false life and it's, it, the life consumes him, not the other way around. Casey, what do you think? What, what are some yeah. things from this movie that you want to keep? Yeah, I think as an exploration a little bit, which I mean, I think it it was not necessarily intended this way, but it's something that we've definitely all connected to being there. But uh, some kind of tale of masculinity and exploration of that, I think that's a really vital theme that can be explored in an interesting way. I think definitely keeping him being like a Cuban refugee and that's where his story starts. I think, oh, definitely keep the... Uh, the yellow Cadillac with zebra interior. 100% keep that. <laughs> oh, that's the best car ever. Yeah, yeah. Has to be in the remake. It's um, a great car. Yep. And I guess to that point, um, I would keep its like operatic tone. You know, I feel like the impulse nowadays would be to be like, this is over the top. We need to take it down to being like realistic and gritty. Let's make the Breaking Bad version of Scarface. But I think one of the things that Scarface actually has to offer really is that it's 
just insanely theatrical and that's part of what makes it really fun it's it's a greek tragedy right um and so that coupled with the like lavish lifestyle of the cocaine 80s makes this really operatic tone that is what makes it fun yeah keep it fun keep it fun i would like that as well because i think there's something to be said for uh in accordance with what i was saying earlier about this facade life Right. The movie itself has to act as this shell, which is, I think, something that a lot of people miss when they're critically viewing this movie is they see it and they're like, this movie's all all style, no substance. And what's even going on? And it's like the movie's about a guy who's all style, no substance. Yeah. The movie's a, the movie's about not knowing what you're doing. And I think that, like, even to the degree that if you were going to go so far as to say that maybe even Brian De Palma didn't know what he was doing when he was doing this, which I could make a strong case for, because he also has said in an interview that he credits this movie with his divorce. Like he, he thinks that he got divorced because of this movie. But uh, if you look at the way that the movie is executed, some of those things come through really strongly. Like the way that he portrays the marriage that is in this movie, uh, <laughs> you know, might say something about what he was going through at the time as well. Yeah. But I, th- I think the movie kind of acts as this vehicle of style, no substance, but that's in essence, what it's trying to communicate. So it does a very good job of that. So I'd say it's got to still have that kind of that very, the top note of it has to be stylish and fun and, and big. So that's what I'd keep. What about you? I don't know. So like my brain immediately goes to all the things that I'm like, well, I would change this. I would change this. So I've been like, as you two have been talking, I've been trying to come up with things that I'm like, I think this is important. And I think Casey hit it on the head of like, I think this needs to be a tale of masculinity I mean, if it's me and I'm being honest, I feel like there needs to be an aspect of uh, this is what masculinity can provide, but also here's all the problems with that style of masculinity. Um, And if it were me, I would like, I would have kind of two running parallels of different styles of masculinity. Like this movie is kind of just, it's kind of the same character. Even the different characters in the movie are kind of the same people at different points in their life. And I would have again, this is something I'm changing, but I would have different forms of masculinity because you can have, you can be, you can be masculine in different ways. Like there is no one way to be masculine. That's something we know now that we certainly didn't know in the eighties. Right. Or how you're, yeah. How, but how, you know, the, the way in which you are exhibiting those masculine qualities or uh, interpreting what it means to be a man or whatever. But right. um, to your point, I think that is a good idea to have, to have. I mean, I think your opportunity there is probably Manny being a parallel yeah. storyline of masculinity of some kind and really bringing to the top maybe his relation. He has this relationship to his wife, relationship to his sister, and then mm-hmm. relationship to his mom, which maybe you could bring in just a just a little bit more. Yeah, I agree with that. I actually didn't recast the moment. I probably should have. Um, but yeah, I agree with that. I also, I had this moment when I was sitting and watching the dinner when apparently the wife's name is Elvira. It I don't is. think they ever, yeah, that was, uh, mm-hmm. that was weird. She um, does introduce herself. Uh, yeah. And then Elvira Hancock, I think is her name. Which mm-hmm. is so weird. Um, great. Name. I feel like we, I feel like we should change that name. Um, <laughs> oh no, I'm not keeping the name Elvira. I feel like the name Elvira is copywritten at this point. <laughs> I'm not sure we're even allowed to use the name Elvira anymore. I don't think you yeah, can there's trademark a, there's a big the bleep going on in this podcast. The listeners are just hearing <laughs> over the top of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there was this moment where like, so the dinner when she finally leaves him, 
there's a moment where they're just sitting around and they're at this really nice dinner and all they can do is talk business. And my head goes, these are three people that need a hobby. I feel like Manny had a hobby, but both Mm -hmm. Elvira and Tony, like they have nothing else. Totally. It's exactly what Roman's saying. They're hollow shells. Like they have this desire, but there's, there's nothing else in their life. It's Uh, like someone who retires and then doesn't know what to do with in their retirement other than maybe go get another job. Yeah, definitely. And I think he touches on that a little bit. He's like, you sit around and do nothing, which is, uh, as you're noting, like this hypocritical criticism that it's like, what the hell are you doing? You're sitting in a bathtub doing nothing while you're telling me that. And there's, I mean, I think that's a gender dynamic that definitely still exists a little bit. But to that point, that's one of the things I thought too, that I was like, how, you know, how do we develop these women characters they could have a little more flesh on them. And nobody's like super deep or anything. And I'm not like thinking that it's like, you know, I feel like, again, the kind of impulse uh, in this day and age would be like, let's turn it around. And like, they, you know, these women have a whole like agenda and stuff too. But I think part of the story is, for instance, Elvira's like lack of interest in anything and um, yeah. her moseying through life and Gina being controlled by her brother and the other men in her life, that kind of thing. Uh, But one of the things that I thought with Elvira is like, she needs to be a little more interesting up front. And I could see her not being somebody who doesn't do anything, but has pursuits, even if they're frivolous, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, she doesn't have to be the brains behind the project, but I feel like she would be involved a little bit in some way or have some care. I mean, she's been surrounded by this for so long. She must have like picked something up and have, she has honestly probably more experience with this than Manny or a lot of other people. Absolutely. And so I thought even if she's like kind of a hacky housewife trophy wife thing that it's like, I've got this jewelry line or whatever that is bullshitty and, nothingness she has some kind of ambition she has some kind of pursuit and then that would strike harder when she's just like doing nothing in that second half of the movie right that's just like oh she was kind of young and bright and had ambition even if it was frivolous or something but that that fell away and she's now she's a shell of a person too yeah i i agree and this movie is already three hours long so i hesitate to add more things to it however I feel like they each need to have a thing that they like, a thing that is kind of emblematic of who they are as a person that they enjoy doing. And I feel like for each one of these people, that thing has to fall by the wayside as they either choose to give it up in favor of the business or they are forced to give it up in favor of the the people forcing them to. So I feel right. like Tony Montana would force his wife to give up this thing. And like, even the sister might have a thing. Like she, like, we even have a thing for her in the movie. Like she was going to, beauty school or she was be- yeah hairdresser training to become a hairdresser and tony's like not anymore now you're not going to do anything and it's like okay so what am i going to spend my time doing can i go dancing no mm-hmm. can i meet guys no okay what do i do nothing yeah there's nothing you're allowed to do yeah and just like the emptiness of this one guy so as i was watching this movie and like kind of watching tony montana my impression of him is that I kind of feel like this is a weird, like a movie about a psychopath in that he wants, like he literally has the sentence where he's like, I want everything. I want the world. And everything that is accomplished 
he's like the example of the bad boss. Like everything that's accomplished that has succeeded, it's because of him. And everything that's a failure, it's because of someone else. Right. And like, he even has a moment when he's finally turning on uh, Frank Lopez. And it's like, I mean, I'm turning on you because it's your fault. Uh, you, You attacked me. I didn't give you any cause to attack you. I was just kind of taking some things on the side and doing whatever I could to maintain my own life anyway. But I can't believe you attacked me. Yeah. That's a good point. That that emotional immaturity or narcissism, for sure. Yeah. That that drives it. And that's one of the things that, uh, to your point of people being interested in something, I think, you know, that Frank Lopez character is not being taken advantage of enough. But the one thing that I do kind of see there is that he has an energy and he, like, kind of likes this, right? He's, like, good at it and he enjoys it. And that's, like, kind of a weird thing, maybe. But he's, like, I... I like dealing in cocaine. This is fun for me and I'm good at it. And I, my friends are in it and everything like that, where Tony's just a little bit more like, how can I get a little more power? How can I get a little more power? How can I get a little more power? Which is not to say that Frank Lopez is pure of heart in any sense, but it's a good reflection of that, that it's like, he's doing something because he wants to do it and he gets some joy out of it. Even if it is in any way corrupt. Yeah. Well, he also had the best philosophy of like, when you're doing this, you aim for the middle. If you try to get too big, you will you will flare out, which of course is exactly what Tony does, and it's very um, astute. But like Frank Lopez is the example of someone who is able to have longevity at a career that is designed almost explicitly to prevent longevity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, of all of the, like, he is an old drug dealer, and that's not a thing that exists. That's something to aspire to be, but then, of course, Tony hates it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I would say that the way that I view the movie is almost like Tony uh, becomes like a parasite that infects Frank and then uh, assumes Frank's form and then, you know, <laughs> discards Frank and has taken over Frank's life. He just becomes Frank, yeah. which is not which is not becoming himself. He doesn't become Tony Montana, the king of the the, the drug lords. He becomes... He yeah. just absorbs Frank Lopez and Frank Lopez's wife and Frank Lopez's empire and then just becomes a person that doesn't mean anything to him. You That's, know what I mean? Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's very well observed. I like it. Word. I don't hear that very much. That's great. You're just like, yeah, yeah, that was an adequate description and I agree. It's like, oh, cool. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, that worked so well for me that like I want to move on to something else. One of the other things that I think is important to have in this movie that this is a product of the fact that this movie was made in the 80s, but now that we're making it now, I think we could have more Spanish in the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was oh, yeah. weird to me when like Tony was at home with his mother and sister and they were speaking English. Yeah. Yeah, I can't agree more. I'm Al Pacino, shaking I my head furiously. Yes. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I think, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, one just uh, like this is not a movie that's purely for white people, so maybe a little appropriate representation that. that it's like, oh, these are people who would be speaking Spanish at home, so maybe that's smart. But even in just a fundamental sense, that I'm like, I read Al Pacino learned some like Spanish for this movie and I think it was like the cinematographer spoke Spanish and he told him to only speak Spanish to him throughout, you know, that kind of thing. But so it's theoretically possible, but yeah, I was going to say, I think for even from a practical sense to the point that you uh, were both making about how there needs to be some kind of like 
we'll call it escalation from the beginning to the end where people lose hobbies or they lose interests or they become shells. Like if you start the movie with, with, yeah, if you start the movie with Tony speaking in Spanish a lot and having a connection to speaking Spanish and then becomes more, as we'll say, Americanized or whatever, you know, throughout the movie, then he even loses touch with his roots anymore. So Mm -hmm. like losing touch with your roots would also be losing touch with your family. Right. So like if his mom, maybe if his mom only speaks Spanish and he then starts refusing to speak Spanish around her Mm -hmm. or whatever, because he's, you know, embracing the new life or whatever, that even is just a very simple move where the movie starts very heavily Spanish influenced. And then by the end, he doesn't even, you know, maybe by the end, he doesn't even like when other people speak Spanish or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's something there. I can't figure out exactly what it'd be, but I I see that it's there. I mean, one of the things we talked about kind of at the beginning is that like the, the character of Tony Montana in the movie as it exists is kind of the same character throughout, but like situations change. And I feel like now what we expect from our characters and from our movies is some sort of change in transformation. Yeah. Which I think um, is, uh, was I think what we're getting at. I, yeah, I agree. And I think that's, I, I think I blame Brian De Palma for that a little bit. Um, uh, trying to trace the origin of it a little bit but because i can see al pacino being for lack of more nuance because there isn't any a little more chill at the beginning and a little more lost his mind at the end and that's one of the things that i found and embraced about in my version i'm like it is it would definitely be a clear descent into madness story yeah and i think you can do that. that with I think that also makes it more Greek. It makes yeah. it a, more of a Greek tragedy. Um, I think it keeps that kind of simple mythological idea to it without having to like be like, oh, let's learn more about like the cocaine trade and stuff, which is what a lot of the TV shows do now. It's just like, no, it's a simple, you get it, he sells drugs. It's a mythological descent into madness, Greek tragedy about the American dream, <laughs> kind of. Um, and I think that can be reflected in kind of all the characters, right? Because we see that kind of happen. Michelle Pfeiffer has a certain descent into madness. She's kind of personable and stuff up front. And then she turns into a bored junkie and the, the sister is. Theoretically though, the, the wife escapes. I mean, she's not, she, she lives. Theoretically. And I, I'll tell you, I think that's not a good choice, but. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I think she's got to go down with the shit. I was like, wait, where'd she go? It's yeah. like that makes sense, I guess, to be. But I, like, that I disagree. That's made those life choices. I think she gets herself stuck in that situation, or at least to her own perception. I disagree. I think she needs to live, but I think we need to see her again. And she has <laughs> tied her ship to the next drug lord. Yeah, sure. Because well, that would be, yeah, no one else. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. I don't think she has to die necessarily, but she does have to not leave that's what i yes think. yeah because like she, she can't conceive of anywhere else to be yeah i guess yeah. I, what i say is that it's like i don't think anybody can have a happy ending and her leaving yeah kind of is yeah that's fair that's true i agree with that and then the sister also it's an incredibly greek finale of she's like yeah. just screaming fuck me fuck me as she's trying mm-hmm. to kill her brother because yeah. he's taken literally everything from her yeah exactly so i think I think those also can you imagine if they'd had just one more day, but that's not how these things work. Nope, not at all. 
But yeah, I think those three characters all have their own kind of descent into madness arc that would be interesting with different kind of catalysts to that and ways that that looks for each of their experience. And then probably Manny has some kind of reflection of that, even though he can't turn like crazy like they do. You know what I mean? I I think Manny should be the one who we think is going to be okay. He's the one who's kind of realizing that there's a problem and is kind of looking for stability and a solution, which of course means he has to die. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's kind of who Manny is. Manny's the one slippery slope sort of arc almost that it's like, we kind of agree with him because he has, you know, he's, retaining a lot of his sanity and stuff and then kind of seeing in retrospect that it's like well of course those are all bad choices because why would you not get out of this or whatever you know why would you make these choices under these circumstances and it's he's still very much complicit even if he's not the active party exactly yeah which i think is like manny is the closest thing as a stand-in for the audience in the sense that like We, we're not becoming drug lords, but if we were to become drug lords, we'd probably approach it with cautious uh, yeah. optimism or whatever. Right? Yeah. We wouldn't be like, we wouldn't go full-fledged like Tony. And we definitely are watching the same movie that Manny is. We're both watching our friend, the protagonist. We're watching Tony go out of control, you know? And so w- we share a lot of his thoughts and feelings. So I agree that he probably should be the, the uh, voice of reason. Yeah, definitely. Although for yeah. Manny, it's an even longer movie. yeah yeah i agree with all of that so then in terms of like what else so what else do we need to talk about in terms of like the movie that we want to create like what are some other important aspects that need to be in our version in our remake that we haven't covered yet for either of you i really think that the the visual style and the energy the pace of the energy of the film are something that works in its favor and I would want to keep that as well. And I think that in terms of modernizing it, there's definitely a lot of room to like capitalize on the stuff that was already happening in the De Palma version, which is just lots of stylistic, strong stylistic choices, lots of moves, lots of like the camera. It, it's showy in a cinema way, you know? So I would want it to be uh, a movie where the techniques used to film that movie are over the top you know you think of movies that have like man that movie had a seven minute long tracking shot or like dang that movie had the camera go through the wall into the other room into the thing you know movies that have impressive what what i should say is like impressive technical achievements this movie i would want to have impressive technical achievements in terms of the way that it's filmed from every perspective and then including and especially the action scenes i think need to stay very unique like one of the big strengths of this movie to me was how unique its action sequences are. So even though it's a movie that's been ripped like a zillion times since, its action sequences still feel original and unique, even though people have been literally taking exactly from those scenes and then using them. So, so then for our version, do we need to have new new action sequences? or Because we can't just rip it because this exists now. So right. do we need to find new ways of the same emblematic, like some that hit the same emotional points, but are wildly different. Like we can't have the chainsaw scene anymore because that exists. We need to find something else and not just, he walks in with an ax instead. Sure. Well, yeah, I totally agree. uh, I think that scene in general should come later. I think there should be a very steady and clear escalation of, uh, of all of the points, but violence in particular, you know, Mm -hmm. that, 
again, the idea is some kind of slippery slope that's like, oh, I'll, I'll do a little dealing here and make some money to get on my feet so I can, you know, do real good business or whatever. And, um, and then suddenly you're in a really dark, violent place with a lot of evil and stuff before you know it kind of thing. Um, yeah, I agree with so that. So I think I it should have been a little more subtle escalation, but that is a great scene. It's a great scene, but now that you mention it, as I'm thinking about it, the movie doesn't get more brutal than watching your friend get chainsawed in front of you. Like right, that exactly. is that's the peak of brutality for this movie, and I feel like the surprise peak of brutality needs to be when uh, the Omar character is thrown out of the helicopter. I think this needs to be a stunning yeah. moment for both Tony and the audience of like, holy shit, is this the world I'm getting involved in? And then the as the audience recoils, that's when Tony steps forward. Yes. And says, yes, right. that's what I want to be a part of. I agree. You know what? To, to that point, though, you guys just opened up something I had not thought of, which is when that scene does happen to Tony, when you get your friend's limbs chainsawed off right in front of your face, that is kind of a decisive moment where Tony goes, I don't have feelings anymore. I'm just going to pursue this uh, from a strategy perspective. Because I think if you watch your friend get chainsawed in front of you, that's probably a moment where you go, I'm out. This isn't for me. Like, somebody I care about died well, in I a think gruesome can, way right in front of me. But the fact that he doubled down after that maybe makes that a really important scene in the sense that like, that's what spurs his trajectory of what Sam might refer to as like uh, psychopathy. Well, and that's, you know? I guess what I'm saying with that is I don't think you need to lose that scene. I think it can have that same impact. Like you're saying with the Omar scene or whatever, but it has to come at like that point in the timeline kind of thing that it's right about there that something brutal happens and he takes that step forward, like you're saying, and it can be that same kind of function, right. That like in the apartment. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think I hear you. You're just, you're just talking about moving it for the sake of narrative escalation. Right. And, I, I would agree and then, with that. so there's maybe that, and then we see Omar and then kind of things start to spiral out a little bit. Yeah. And I think the scene could even potentially stay where it is. If, the, I think the ramifications of the scene need to be constant, but I think the brutality of the scene can be lessened because we will then br- brutalize things more so yeah. later yeah. on. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I think totally. his friend should still be killed in front of him because, fuck, that's intense. Yeah. Yeah. But chainsawing, <laughs> like, literally nothing else in the movie, like, to get, gets to that point. Like, even when Omar's thrown out of the airplane, nothing is as bad as, like, the audience going, I really don't want to have to watch this dude get chainsawed. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, strong point. I agree. <laughs> but yeah, uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered that's like a thing that you want for our version? I guess just like Miami, man, just Miami forward. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it's just got to be the most Miami movie, which it already, this one plays into the aesthetics of like sunsets and stuff. But I think as yeah, I was talking I mean, to Casey about this, some of the set pieces in this movie are kind of like hokey. Like the environments that he's in, like looks like he's on a set of what a rich guy's place might look like mm-hmm. instead yeah. of actually being in a rich place. So I think this really needs to like, if Dial I was, if, if we're talking about our remake, let's go like, think like Boz Lerman takes on Miami. Like it's gotta a be like, bit, boom, yeah. like huge, you know, like very extravagant. I would think lots of neon lights. Oh, hundred percent. Like I, Lisa I know, Frank like a common trend, the Greek but. tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Just have it be really bombastic visually through the use of the fact that Miami is very bombastic visually. And then you'd get, and I think that's another uh, thing that like that stylistically could escalate as well. And I saw that they did that a little bit, but that Tony, like at the beginning is the only one that's kind of wearing bright colors and stuff. 
and that could be true. And then everything feels a little more neutral toward the beginning. And then it becomes more and more colorful until you have like this bloodbath at the end. Um, where yeah, every, yeah, yeah. everything's bright colors. And I would, I would, yes, I agree. And I would almost make like Tony's escalation more self-referential to the things other people have done that he pictures in his brain as being desirable because it's yeah. kind of like he has a wild style and then just has a wild style throughout the movie. Like, like when he shows up in the yellow Cadillac with the, with the zebra stripes. And then like mm-hmm. at the end of the movie, when his house is just covered in red carpeting as one does. Yeah. But that doesn't come from anything. That's just like, Oh, look at how weird this guy is. Right. Right. Like, that's kind of uh that's probably kind of a white gaze issue, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's like, look at this yeah, weird so, guy yeah. with the colored clothes. And it's like, Oh, yeah. that's like, Latino cultures use like colored, they have yeah. colored clothing and stuff. They don't wear beige like we do. Yeah. Oh man. Us cool white people in our beige. You and me. No, nothing says cool dude like khaki. That's right. <laughs> Can you imagine Tony Montana in khaki? Yes. Uh, but like, but 100%. it's to what Roman was saying at the beginning of just like him slowly. And both of you actually were saying like, he's slowly abandoning his own self, self of identity for what he assumes someone in his position should be and have. Uh-huh. And, yeah. and as Roman was just saying, like this should be a, an, an opportunity for everyone involved to show off set deck, costume, camera, lighting, acting, directing, well, everyone should get to show off. Yeah, absolutely. Totally and to both of those points, basically, and, you know, making a Scarface for our times, like, I think you kind of have to, and being able to observe that, dressing or like doing the things that you think somebody is supposed to do to look powerful or cool or whatever really speaks to kind of the Instagram age, right? Everything Mm -hmm. has to look good. And a a lot of posing for the camera, right? A lot of posing to be like, what makes someone look cool? And how can I copy that so that people think I'm cool or powerful or whatever? Yeah. And, and to that point, when the movie came out, people, uh, I was reading reviews from the time and people were talking about how like, it's too much, like the movie's like so extreme, but then now to modern audiences, uh, Scarface is like, just fits in with a lot of movies that do this thing now. So like art escalated since Scarface. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to make Scarface now, you have to outdo, you have to, you have to do the Scarface of now, which is like the bar is a lot higher for extremeness. So think of like what Tarantino does or something you know, to get his audience engaged. And, uh, you know, a direct reference is, uh, you know, in Kill Bill Volume 1, there's a scene where they have the fight and she's killing the people in Oren's, like, lair. And she slashes someone and they fall off into a pool of water. That's Scarface. That's what happens at the end of Scarface. Mm-hmm. You get killed and fall into a pool of water. So, like, if you think of how it heightened and extreme Kill Bill is for that time that it came out, and then you think of, you know, what's the next level? How do we grow that? Even I think, further, it just needs more. I actually think that might be a dangerous way uh, route to go down because I think if you continue to heighten, eventually you reach a point of eventually y- you can't out Tarantino, Tarantino. Like eventually, if you just go even more Tarantino, you're like, well, you're just doing like it, it, you can only do so much. I feel like uh, whoever director we end up with, I feel like needs. To, I think it needs to be stylized, if not necessarily heightened. I feel like heightened. It just like it's bigger and louder and be- better, as opposed to memorable. 
I feel like as long well, as it's no very memorable, memorable. Uh, yeah, that's what I mean by it is okay. the sense that it's got to leave an impression with the audience, yeah. not that it has to be. Because yeah, I, maybe I'm not communicating clearly yeah, because I totally basically agree with when you. you bring up Tarantino, I just think Tarantino. I'm like, you can't compete with Tarantino and what Tarantino's doing. Oh, of course not. No, but but I guess what I all I mean to bring that up is it doesn't need to be like Tarantino. Just to say that Tarantino saw Scarface, literally took it shot for shot for that sequence in Kill Bill, and you can't necessarily when you're watching kill bill you don't think oh that's scarface you just watch it and it feels like wow well that is what tarantino does um (laughs) (laughs) uh but in terms of people who are going to be working at the peak of their craft let's talk cast hey ideal remakers this is roman i'm your lead instructor here at film reframed we're an online film course that teaches the visual storytelling techniques that you wish you learned in film school We're here as industry professionals to empower you with the skills you need to get an edge in pitching projects, competing for jobs, and leading with your vision on set. We have a new intensive workshop every month, and in May, we're diving into understanding color. You'll learn how to apply color to your films with narrative intention and confidence, because after all, what good are Calvin degrees, gels, and white balances if you don't know how to use them to support your story? Go boldly from analogous and complementary color schemes to compound, tetradic, and back again. And if you don't know those words yet, don't worry. We've got you covered. Follow us on Instagram at Film Reframed and check out our upcoming classes at filmreframed.com. I feel like we got to start with Tony Montana. I mean, like, this is going to be the defining person in our movie. That makes sense, yeah. And for me, so for a bunch of these characters, I went out of my way to make sure I cast Cuban actors as much as I could. Um, I think I have a couple exceptions. But uh, for Tony Montana, I feel like there's an obvious person here. Hey, that's what I said. That's what I said too. So I want to. I know think I have you. a different yeah. choice in that case, but yeah. yeah. I mean, my actor's been in Ex Machida, Inside the Well, and Davis, <laughs> and Star Wars. I went with Oscar Isaac. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, but believe me, it pained me to do that because it felt very like, for lack of a better term, it felt like just right there and obvious. And I like to, yeah. I like to be a little bit like you know off, you know, uh, like pretending to be original. Yeah. But but to that point, he is a. I think he's a great fit for it. And when to qualify all these choices, when you're like, oh, we all kind of went out of our way to make sure it's cast as a Cuban cast, that limits the amount of notable actors that currently are that people are aware of. And this, which is why KC is about to blow us away with. Yes. (laughs) Um, So I definitely tried to take from a pool of Cuban actors, but my rule was just Latino at all, (laughs) for sure. They had to be Latino. And my, like, who came to mind for me, I felt so good about it for a second. And I was like, man, that's like great casting. That'd be such a good idea. And then I realized that I have this blind spot of I don't watch a lot of genre TV. So then I was like, (laughs) oh, this is the most obvious choice. This is almost a boring choice. But that's because I haven't seen Game of Thrones I haven't watched The Mandalorian, and I haven't seen Narcos, um, but I did see Wonder Woman, and I thought that Pedro Pascal had a wonderful and bombastic Descent into Madness character there, and that would be a fun choice. I do love Pedro Pascal. That is also an excellent choice. Uh, I think... And actually, the Oscar Isaac and the Pedro Pascal, I think, is like kind of two sides of the Al Pacino coin. Yeah, you're you're not wrong. Uh, however, I think in this particular case, I think we have to go with Oscar Isaac just because he is Cuban, whereas Pedro Pascal is not. Fair enough. Um, 
And I think, I mean, and I, I think for everything else, it can be a little bit more fluid. Do you know what nationality Pedro Pascal is? I think he's Spanish. He's not Spanish. No, he's Latino. Uh, He's Chilean. Yes. Good. Thank you. But yeah, I mean, obviously Pedro Pascal would be great at this because I have seen Mandalorian. I have seen Game of Thrones and, uh, I have also seen Wonder Woman 1984, and he's great in all of them. Yeah. I just like Pedro Pascal. Yeah, I like him too, and he's, so I guess he's new to me since he's new to movies, you know? Because I'm not so much, my my movie knowledge is vast, and my TV knowledge is some. So. Fair. Yeah, but also to the point of uh, Oscar Isaac, he's around the same age that Pacino was when Pacino played Scarface, as far as my research. So is Pedro Pascal. Pedro yeah, Pascal's a little well. He's a little older. Pedro Pascal's on the other side yeah. of forties, and and Oscar Isaac's, uh, Oscar Isaac's forty-two. So fair. Oscar Isaac's forty-two now. Damn. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to look like that when I'm forty-two. Shit. Yeah, he's very handsome. That's what we know. Yes, these are good, good, good genes to have. <laughs> Let's talk about Manny. Manny, I got uh, Manny was the one I had the most difficult Me time too. with because. Yeah. Casting a, a Cuban actor who has a sense of, um, I guess what I thought Manny brought to Scarface is that he had a wholesomeness to him, you know, right? He's, he's kind of like the, as we said, he's the stand-in for the morality or he's the like, like the audience. And I had a difficult time finding somebody that fits that bill just, just overtly, just kind of that like just good-natured guy kind of attitude. Um, so I had to go into television actors and I... Uh, my choice is uh, Rome Flynn, so you may need to look him up. He is in How to Get Away with Murder, and he is also a soap actor. He is uh, very handsome. He's considerably younger than Oscar Isaac. He's 29, so in terms of the age up kind of thing, I know that the movie of Scarface spans when Scarface is younger to when he gets older, so there's definitely like aging that would need to happen there, but... I do think that Rome Flynn has a very like wholesome naivete about like his his face, and I think a good fit to go with the uh, the sister as like maybe that they're like a good way out. So because I think he's charismatic but wholesome, and he's Cuban, uh, I just thought that he would be a solid choice. Um, but I'm very interested in what you have to say because that was the hardest one for yeah. me to identify. Casey, go ahead. Yes. So, yeah, it was really hard. There's a lot of different directions to go. A lot of different directions to go, but still a small pool of actors to choose from. And I was noticing there's a weird kind of, like, lack, like a little a little bit of a famine of that age range for some reason. But, so I kind of went in a maybe weird direction, but I agreed that, like, I think wholesome and likable and kind of, that's one of the things that I would think would need to be true here is that you really have to feel it. I think when he kills him and they, they kind of brush past it a little bit in the, in the movie. Um, but I think having that be like the real like bomb at the end, that then just the snowballs downhill to the grand finale. So I was thinking, well, he's not Cuban, but he is from Miami. I was thinking, bring in Wilmer Valderrama a beloved character actor from TV that it, we know is like wholesome and funny and lovable. And, uh, and yeah. And kind of have that be our guy that stays squeaky clean a little bit. That's a fun idea. 
Yeah, I like that a lot. I'm looking. I like that a lot. I'm looking too. at his current his current look. You know, a lot of people think of him as Fez or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, right. But no, with now that I'm considering him in his current state, like yeah, he he looks athletic and and wholesome and charismatic, and those are the, I think the qualities that uh, Manny embodies. And Manny doesn't have a lot of lines, so <laughs> yeah. In the in the sense of like try, having to go toe to toe with like Oscar Isaac in terms of performance, right? I think that Wilmer Valderrama could definitely do that if he doesn't have to talk a lot. <laughs> so I think that's a yeah. strong move. And not I don't, to disparage him, I, yeah. So Oscar I Isaac's don't know what his so, range is. Yeah. To be fair, but I agree that the Manny character only kind of has to stand there and look wholesome or look, you know, concerned and these kind of things to be a little bit of an avatar for the audience and doesn't need to have a whole oh. lot to say necessarily. Oh, this totally clicks for me. What what Manny needs to be is somebody who's genuine and that's because yeah. Tony is a shell and everybody else is a shell. So what we need to see in Manny, all we need to see is that he's being genuine with whatever he feels. So he doesn't have to be moralistic. Yes. He doesn't have to be uh, you know, anything other than a guy who says what he actually thinks and feels and looks sure. that way. Yeah. So my Manny uh, is an actor who I haven't seen perform before, but I, I thought the important thing for Manny is that I also went with the Cuban actor, but like I thought he needed to be pretty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Needs to be a pretty dude. Uh, so I found an actor who's been in Resident Evil. He was in the Single Moms Club. He's in something called Addicted. It's an actor named uh, William Levy. William Levy. Yeah. And so if you look him up, very pretty dude. He is pretty. He is pretty. He has nice hair. I know there. Wilmer Valderrama. I I think of our three choices, I think Wilmer Valderrama is probably the best choice. I know he had a bit of a scandal, I don't know, an X number of years ago, just because he was like, he was on the Howard Stern show. And when you're on the Howard Stern show, you talk about really gross shit. And he, uh, there's stuff going on there. It has like, that's, I feel like the worst thing he's done. And I think it was 15 years ago. Yeah, it, it didn't I make it, it on his Wikipedia it's... page, so it couldn't have been that big of a deal, right? Yeah, that that's what I was gonna say. Like, I feel like it's it's worth bringing up because I feel like these things need to be discussed, yeah. and I I feel like we should go with William Valderrama with the asterisks of if we like if we do a little bit digging and find out he's kind of just an ass, we go with someone sure, else. Of course, anybody can get fired for being an ass. I agree. Yes. Yeah, really interesting. I agree that it's the strongest choice on here from a just uh, you know performance perspective. But I did not know that about his. Uh, yeah, I don't know what this scandal. That being said. Since you brought yeah. it up, I think maybe Frank Lopez is who we should talk about next. Uh, great. Sounds good. Um, yeah. I went first for the first one. Roma went first for the second. Casey, you're up. Yeah, because uh, it is very strange that you bring it up because, again, I was like, I went really left field with it. I went with the Jewish part of him and chose a Jewish person and again there was like wow there's a lot of different directions we could go here but one of the things that i really liked about him is that he was really high energy uh to tony's like stoicism and that he was like a guy that's like having fun with it right and that was kind of his style there and i think you could dial that up so i have this left field thing as i was like what about like howard stern oh god and that um he obviously doesn't do a lot of acting. He just does cameos and stuff, but I have seen private parts and I thought he was pretty good in that and giving it like really, he plays himself, but not just lazily. And um, 
I think having that kind of weird cameo of this like big guy with big hair and stuff that introduces you into the cocaine world and he's like fun and he has this trophy wife and wears like a lot of weird jewelry and stuff. I thought that that would be a fun escalation of that. Interesting choice. (laughs) My Frank Lopez, I also kind of looked at uh, the Jewish side. I ended up not going with that. I found, I I kind of just wanted to find someone who uh, had kind of been in the gangster world, but like kind of been like, all right, I can see what's going on here, but is kind of doing his own twist on it in a way that's more fun. And I realized my actor might actually be a little bit too young for this. So I went with an actor named uh, Lucien Misamati or Msamati, M-S-A-M-A-T-I. And I'm, I'm not saying I just went with him because he has Sam in his last name. However, he does, and that's a strong argument for me. <laughs> yeah, he's got a great face. Yeah. yeah, he's been in The International, he was in The Good Liar, he was in The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. He's had some fun roles, and he's played a lot of gangsters. And so like, I, it felt to me like he kind of like would have kind of the, all right, there's gangster, but let's have gangster. Just because yeah. we're gangsters doesn't mean we don't know how to have a good time. Sure. So that's, that's who I had. Roman, who'd you have for Frank Lopez? Yeah, so in the film, I thought that Frank Lopez is the, you know, as a character, he's the embodiment of somebody who's been in the game a long time. But the actor that they cast as Frank Lopez, to me, didn't feel as old as he needed to feel. Like he doesn't, to me, I guess, just didn't read as an old man, even though like by all accounts of his character, he is an old man. So I, I cast somebody who's 70, so that that's, you know, an age difference. But uh, I thought that uh, Tony Plana would be a great choice. So I don't know if you're aware of Tony Plana, went, but he does. You guys went the total opposite direction of me and cleaned him up. Yeah, but what I, the reasons, uh, this is why I would advocate for Tony Plana is basically being Cuban as well. He is in that concept of like Scarface taking over that Frank's life and then you know eating him from the inside out kind of thing i think that tony plana is a great like what you would imagine an aged version of of tony that went well like if tony uh, to casey's point like if if tony enjoyed what he was doing and actually tony montana enjoyed what he was doing and uh yeah that there's a theoretical there was a purpose-driven life Mm -hmm. there that Mm -hmm. that he would end up looking more like tony plana and tony plana is very charismatic he's very like he he comes off as very like genuine but he also has this great like and he does it rarely but in his performances he can do these turns where he gets really like nasty and gritty and kind of like you know grits his teeth at you and i he could be a real mean dude so i think that he's a good like he seems nice he seems clean cut and then he also he'd get you you know you got to watch out for him so that's why i chose him interesting i feel i don't want to go with howard stern because i'm just not a big fan of howard stern sorry i I would say I'm like some big fan, but uh, artistically it was Um, an interesting choice. I don't disagree. However, for some reason I feel like my choice is a little bit too young and I feel like Roman's choice is a little bit too old, especially if they're going to be dating some young person. But I'm perfectly happy to go with either one. So KC, between Lucien uh, Misamati and uh, Tony Plana, which one of those two speaks the most to you? You get final say on this. Um, I agree but I think he needs to be older and she's supposed to be a trophy wife. So it really doesn't matter. Okay. Sounds good. Then I agree with that. So then next let's talk about his wife. Let's talk about Elvira. Um, so I wanted someone who just a good actress, 
seen in a bunch of different things, capable of doing the drama, but cap- someone who looks like they could have been fun, but then that's just like beaten out of them. Not physically beaten yes. out of them, but just like the world. So I went with an actress named uh, Yara Shahidi. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been in Salt. She's in Blackish. I first saw her as a little kid in Butter. Yep. Um, and I think she's great. I think she she portrays very joyful in the same way that Michelle Pfeiffer can portray very joyful. But then it will be even sadder to see kind of like what she's become. Hmm. Yeah, yeah guys really are interesting. on a similar track there too. Yeah, I think we caught a same wavelength. I I tapped more into the fact that Elvira like needs to be incredibly striking. You know, you know, upon seeing her, that's just kind of like the role that you know. And I don't know about how you guys feel when you watch the movie or anybody else, but you see the movie and you see that first scene where you see Michelle Pfeiffer and you're like, dang, she's hard not to look at. She's very like impressive looking person, and the movie yeah. frames her that way. So to me, you need a person who can embody a very striking individual while also then being able to play that like totally zonked out character is, 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 later on, somebody who can play the the on drugs version. Uh, so, and, and you need her to be quick and and witty and sharp. Like you, you need to see that she's intelligent and then lose that. So, like to me, I don't know that I would play the remake having her be full of life and then lose life. Like I think she's already <laughs> in a bad thing. Yes. and I'm not implying that's what you're saying, Sam. But what I mean is. I think I would have it be like at the beginning of the movie, you can see that she's very fast and sharp and on it. And then later she becomes, you know, she loses purpose too. So mm-hmm. then why be sharp and fast? Depressed and, and groggy. And every, and... Yeah, depressed. Yeah. So to me, having just seen Malcolm and Marie, I was thinking that Zendaya would be a good choice uh, for that role because she is very striking. She's very young, which I think is a good choice for, you know, she's connected to this old drug lord and you think like, man, that they're not in it for love, right? <laughs> But, you know, she, she seems like someone who would be young and along for that ride and tap into that life as a source of, like, wealth and drug supply and, and power. And then when uh, Tony takes that over as well, I don't know. I see that Zendaya has some good dramatic chops. So I would think that her and Oscar Isaac could definitely have some cool scenes together. So that would be my choice. Cool. Casey, uh, who did you have? Yeah, um, I went through a lot of different, like, starlets and everything and since she doesn't have much of a background, there's a lot of different like ethnic profiles she can have. I went through, I was like making her Asian for a while. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I kind of like that. She has this like blonde bimbo archetype a little bit that she's not a bimbo, but, but that's what she personifies in some certain way, which makes her attractive to these guys who want a hollow shell of a woman. kind of thing. But again, is clearly intelligent if not educated and uh sharp and witty and um and i agree i was like i think it's important that she's striking which yeah i I think she has to you know in in the sense of like the operaticness of it she kind of has to pop off the page and be like crazy good looking even though technically that story doesn't have to play that way i think she has to be very much the trophy wife and look look like an adornment for Tony, right? In the same way that his big throne is or his red carpet is or whatever, you know, that she's just one of the, yeah, she's just part of the set dressing for him. And so having Mm -hmm. the biggest, hottest wife would be that. So I thought Margot Robbie 
And I thought that she could be, again, the kind of like, she's fun and flirty and striking at the beginning and kind of cutting and sarcastic like Michelle Pfeiffer and then see her descend and drown in her like sad Harley Quinn stuff Um, or (laughs) Tanya Harding or whatever. Yeah. Um, And I also didn't want to make her, I I think one thing I did too, too young because I wanted her to be more a reflection of where the sister is going to end up, not have her be a direct parallel to the sister. You know what I mean? So it's that's, like, yeah, that makes this, sense. This is where the yeah, sister's going to be too. in eight years or something. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I like that. Yeah, my that might be the best argument because Yara Shahidi is twenty one and Dai is twenty four. Uh, I think Margot Robbie is twenty nine. I think she's thirty, but yes, you're exactly right. She is thirty. That's a good reason to go with Margot Robbie, actually. Yeah, let's do that. Let's go with Margot Robbie. Yeah, that's a great point uh, thematically being ahead of the sister's trajectory is I think very important. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. So let's talk about the sister. Let's talk about Gina. I went first to the last one. So Roman, you're up. Uh, yes. Well, again, I was so self-conscious in doing this cause I always want to pick some original crazy thing, but <laughs> then when you're picking, you're picking famous people that other people are aware of, that becomes a difficult thing to do. So I'm going to try to set, shed my self-consciousness for a little bit and go, uh, I went Anna de Armas for Gina. And I think that she's got, the ability to play the um, wholesome or naive kind of character, but that she also, when she does have to lose it at the end of this movie, I think she's very capable of of playing like a, the way I see the sister's downfall at the end is she's like, the, what makes her scary is that she's not scary. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like she comes in, she comes in in like a nightgown. She's just like, and it's all about, again, that weird like obsession with his sister or whatever, but she just comes in with so little actual like clout she has no power at all but she's got mm-hmm. a gun right and to me Anna de Armas playing into her you know for lack of better phrasing like wimpier side I think could be a really compelling woman waving a gun around at the end just totally defeated so she starts out with a lot of hope and then ends up totally agree you know. yeah I mean she's 32 but other than that great argument mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. You don't Too always old. Play okay. Your age though, you know. Yeah, you don't always have to. But Casey, who did you have? I really wanted to play into the little sister dynamic of that and what he sees in her that way and her disastrous coming of age sort of story. And so have her be really young and see her progression a little bit and have her be kind of young and bubbly and teenagery at the beginning a little bit. And then, so in that first half, you're kind of on Tony's side, whether you should be or not, but since he is the protagonist and you see her, you know, making out in club bathrooms with guys and stuff, you're, there's part of you that agrees with them. Right. And it's like, yeah, you're too young to be doing that. But then grows into this monster because she never, had a chance under the circumstances kind of thing. So all that to say, I wanted to play into her young little sisterness. So I picked Isabella Gomez from one day at a time who plays teenagery really well and is cute and naive looking, but she is 23. So she uh, does clean up and age up <laughs> into more adult looking as well. Um, so you could see that progression a little bit. 
Now seems like the time to tell you that my casting choice is exactly 19 right now. (laughs) She is known for being lively and bubbly and being youthful and fun. And you know that because she just played Dora in the Dora the Explorer movie. Which I have definitely seen. Yes. And it's supposed to be fun. I want to see it. I just haven't had a chance yet. Uh, Casey, as soon as you said Isabella, I was like, oh, we went with the same person. But we didn't. Um, I have Isabella Merced. Nice. And why? what was the choice uh, there? Because, like, literally she's been playing Dora. Like, we know her. Like, like I, mm-hmm. I'm also kind of playing into the meta castingness of it a little bit in the sense that, like, yeah. people who know her know her as this young, fun person. And now all of a sudden... She's an adult. She's like, like yeah, so uh, you're all of a sudden being wavelength there. Yeah, very much so. Pushed into a world that might be a little bit too much, too fast for her. Yeah, um, man, I yeah. really like both of your choices. I think those are both the Isabellas are a good move. Yep. Yeah, I thought that would be fun for age alone. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this one for me. I'm gonna say we're gonna go with Isabella Merced. Cool. So then, that brings us to. So I have three other actory characters i have omar the f marie abraham character i have sosa the drug lord and i've got bernstein the cop okay do either of you have any acting characters beyond those yeah yeah i have one that i'm really excited to share as well but yeah (laughs) sorry we'll we'll save that uh, (laughs) for a moment then um did no one recast fidel castro no (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh let's talk about omar omar is the gap in mine i don't have an omar you don't have an omar I don't have uh, an Omar. Omar's the one that gets thrown out of a helicopter. Who doesn't want to have an Omar? I know. I think it's great. I just couldn't I couldn't figure it out. So I'm really okay. leaning on you guys. I mean, mine's a little bit of stunt casting. <laughs> okay. Uh, just because I'm literally friends with the person I, I cast. He's been a guest on this show before. Mm. And he happens to be of Cuban descent, but also is a phenomenal actor and has done amazing actory things. I went with uh, Gene Gabriel. Do we have a picture of him? Oh yeah, he's up on IMDb. He has like he is a legit actor. I just also happen to know him. Sure. Oh yeah, I'm seeing him. Yeah, I could totally see that. He even looks kind of similar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he like kind of can play with the like he I know him because I was on an improv team with him. He's very, very funny. But like the things he get casts in more often than not is like dramatic stuff. So like he's an excellent dramatic actor. But I think he can do the exact same thing that F. Murray Abraham did of bringing in a little bit of comedy to the expected dramatic role of it. Sure. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. I kind of went in an almost stunt casting kind of thing as well, which I have to say, despite artistic integrity, I kind of am a sucker for stunt casting. But um, (laughs) I thought you can't make a Scarface movie without Andy Garcia. Yeah, I thought about him for so many different roles. And yep. I was like, oh, man. And I think he fits like, perfect. I, I considered him for Sousa. I considered him for Lopez. Yep, yep. And I think he fits here. And I part of that is, I think, since I was making Lopez kind of high energy and uh, charismatic and everything to the opposite of Tony Man- Montana's, like, stoic, unreadable, low-key kind of confidence and <laughs> tactics that Andy Garcia is kind of a little more mellow as well. And that that would be, mm-hmm. you know, that he could maybe read him better than Lopez could as being a, a more similar personality type and where Lopez is not quite sure why Omar is so suspicious of him at first, that just being able to see one of your own a little bit, I thought would be good there. I think that's fun. 
Yeah, I love having Andy Garcia as well as like Sam to the point you were saying of uh, considering him for so many roles. I think just having Andy Garcia in Scarface is like fairly, uh, to my mind, it feels necessary. (laughs) And I think he's a good fit there because of his. Yeah, uh, I I feel like the argument that we need to make for this that I I feel like which I'm going to make the argument for Andy Garcia, even though I want it to be Gene so bad. A, because I like Gene, but B, because I think he's really good, is if you cast Andy Garcia in this role, you are not expecting him to be killed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And there's going to be people who watch this movie who this is going to be their first time seeing Scarface. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if you're casting someone like Andy Garcia, you're casting someone like Andy Garcia. You're expecting him to go the distance for this movie. Mm -hmm. You're even potentially expecting him to be the main antagonist for the movie. Right. And then to have him killed just like that, I think that that's a big moment. Yeah. And that, I think, is the reason why we would go with Andy Garcia in this role. I agree. That's a great point. Good point, Sam. Let's go with not your guy. Uh, hey. hey, you know, to the point of your guy, he looks great. I'm seeing the pictures. And there, Gene needs to work more. Gene is, Gene is wonderful. There, and that's one of the things that I found, too, is that there's like, I mean, there's almost too many characters in this movie to like keep track of and stuff for yeah. a lot of nonsensical reasons. But I like that there are a lot of characters and that there's so many opportunities to bring in all these little Latino character actors, all these Cuban character actors that don't get a lot of opportunities to play in Scarface. And I, you know, I was bookmarking people that I was like, couldn't really find a specific role for in, um, in this main cast, but I'm like, Oh, it'd be so fun to have them show up and do something, you know? Yeah. Speaking of that brings us to Sosa because the guy I cast for Sosa is someone I've specifically tried to cast in uh, a previous episode, in the Fedora episode. But I, it, he just didn't work for the role we ended up going with. But I felt like he might work really well for Sosa. So did you both have someone for Sosa? I do, actually. I, I don't. I, I, did, I just didn't even consider him. But uh, Casey, right. what you got? Yeah, Casey, I went first for the last one. So why don't you go first for Sosa? All right. Yep, this is another one of my uh, stunt casting picks. But I was like, why not bring in Stephen Bauer to have his little cameo? Being the only <laughs> Cuban actor from the original cast of Scarface, let's bring him back and have him do that. Which is kind of like, I I found in my searching, I was like, oh, he he plays this character basically in the Breaking Bad franchise essentially, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a breaking bad thing. I'll show myself out. That was fabulous. Love it. Also, <laughs> write it down. I, I love this idea. I love the idea of bringing Steven Bauer back. That's so fun. Hey, he looks great uh, now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I like the idea. The funny thing, of course, is that Sosa is the one character in the movie that's decidedly not Cuban. Well, he's Bolivian, right? Since he's, yeah, Bolivian or Colombian, so I, I think. So I guess so, but yeah, which yeah. is funny. That would be even on the meta flip, though, to take the one Cuban guy from Scarface and then put him as the non-Cuban in I the know, remake right? of yeah. Scarface is a great statement. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. Um, let me tell you about the actor I had. So the actor I have has been in Sicario. I first saw him in uh, like the Marvel movies. He's like specifically in like Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, but he's also in Stargirl. And he's someone that when you look him up, just like, the different ways he has like facial hair and hair on his face. Like he can look like wildly different people 
his name is Maximiliano Hernandez, mm-hmm. and I think he's great. He plays sinister very well, but he also plays, you don't think he's going to be sinister very well. And he's also just generally like a fun dude. And I feel like that's the sort of thing that is necessary for Sosa of like, oh yeah, hey, we're just business partners. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. He dies. We're, we're pals, right? Yeah, that's yeah. fun. And I thought that that was the sort of energy to bring to Sosa. Yeah. Um, yeah, I see that. I, I totally see um, For this one, though, I'm going to say let's not go with the stunt casting because we just went with the stunt casting. Sure. Darn. I'm yeah. still, I, I agree with you, but forever in my heart, bringing back Stephen Bauer for that, to me, like, my 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 brain lit up when you said that, Casey. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's so fun. <laughs> was was he him? killed? Yeah, yeah, was he killed in uh, the original? Who's he, who does he play? Uh, I'm bad with names. He plays yeah. Manny. Oh, yeah, he dies. That'd Everyone be weird dies. And Everyone dies in that movie. Does he die? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. He made it played like that random friend who like ran for it. I'm sure he was fine. Yeah. There was that one person who just got pulled into the bushes. We didn't see him get stabbed. Movie rules. Absolutely. Receipt. Sam, I, I, I like the idea. I like the idea of like Andy Kaufmaning you, Sam, and coming on Ideal Remake, and then all of our casting choices just being the people who played the original, and just like, okay, <laughs> we're making Scarface again. Who's the lead? Al Pacino, baby. Boom. But he's older now, and then just do that for every single character, but not Michelle not Pfeiffer. ever be like acknowledged. That's what we're doing. You make that joke, but That's someone did that him. for real. Someone did that for real. Like there was some time when like there've been a couple times when someone's because I was like, I still think he can play this role, and I'm like. Do you not get it what a remake is? We just had a whole conversation. Like, I, I can't cite a specific source, but like, there have been a couple times where it's like, I think this actor's still got it. And I'm like, well, that does. Dude, no. Well, that's funny. I, there's a difference between doing that. it intentionally versus thinking yeah. it's a good idea. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Performance the, art versus right. that. Right. <laughs> that's the thing that, regardless of even if that were true or a good choice, it defies the podcast. <laughs> yeah. I I don't specifically remember. It was weird. Um, Roman, who's the character that you were really excited to tell us about? Oh my gosh, you have no idea how psyched I am. It's so ridiculous. And this will probably be one of those, you know, like Sam's Breaking Bad pun. I'll probably have to show myself out after I do it. But there's a character. So Sam, think back to the apartment scene that mm-hmm. we were talking about earlier, where the car pulls up and there's the whole group. Mm-hmm. And think about the friends who participate in that, like, Raid. You have Manny. Uh huh. You have guy who gets Angel. His, Angel who gets his arms chopped off, right? Yeah, but and then there's Chi-Chi. also the little guy, Chichi, the little short guy that follows him around. And he's got an orange hat on, and, okay. and you got to look it up. Look, look up Chichi real quick. Just look up Chichi from Scarface, and I recommend this strongly to the people at home as well. <laughs> so you got you got a picture of Chichi with his uh, hat on. If you type in Chi-Chi Scarface, you yep. see his orange hat. Okay. I get, see him. Get this. Bruno Mars. Boom. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Casey, do you have anyone for that role? No, no. I mean, it's a perfect choice. It's such a small I, role. <laughs> I also don't have anyone for that role, which means we must go with this. Yep. It has Bring to happen. Mars. Bring it on. Chi-Chi is Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars, half Puerto Rican, all about a hat, very short guy. It's a perfect move. I'm telling you. 
And what a, what a memorable it's cameo. Happening. What a what a way for Bruno Mars to break into the film acting oh career. You know what I'm saying? It is unexpected in a way that everyone will enjoy. <laughs> okay, I'm glad. I'm glad. Here's my question: down. Does he have to supply his own fedora? Yes, it's Ooh, all his question. own. It's all his own wardrobe. Much like Mickey Rourke, he always brings his own wardrobe, and that's it. All right. Second question: Since he, in every individual shot, does he need to be wearing a different fedora? Yes. Yeah. Even even okay. even in the same scene yeah. when you cut back to him, he's wearing a different fedora. <laughs> so, right. That was exactly yeah, my question. Yeah, Excellent. Good. good. We're on the same page. Yeah. Exactly the same imagining for this character. Good. Chi Chi, Bruno Mars. So that leaves us with Bernstein. Oh, and I have Mama. Oh, and you have Mama. And I don't have a Bernstein. Who's your Bernstein? My Bernstein is Emilio Estevez. Mm, fun. Oh, okay, yeah. Totally. You know what, Sam, you mess, you know, we were talking about this and you were like, oh, there's seven roles to recast in this. And I think it's funny that there's so many characters in this film that like identifying yeah. who those people are that you're going to recast mm-hmm. was actually more difficult than I thought. I, even though I, of course, assumed we'd all kind of line up. I didn't expect mm-hmm. anybody to recast Chi Chi, mind you, but uh, Fair. yeah. No, and as, I I ended up recasting man. eight people and not seven people just because like I think I'd forgot I I think I'd forgotten about Bernstein and I wanted to recast Bernstein just because like he has a, he's a memorable enough role and again we don't necessarily expect him to be killed when he's killed yeah and I feel like I thought it was fun to go with Emilio Estevez a because I think he's a, a great actor and he's kind of coming back into the scene but because like especially because he's from the Sheen family mm-hmm. and it is uh, mm-hmm. a family of people who kind of like forego their uh, Hispanic roots in favor of a, a, a white presenting name. Yeah. But not Emilio Estevez. Yeah, big um, move. And I feel like for this particular cop, that's a good thing to do. Yeah. An interesting thing. No, I think that's a, so I, I I think Emilio that's a good Estevez. choice. Yeah, I Thank love you. it, man. Even if I had had a choice, I'd surrender it to your Emilio Estevez. I think fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Casey, who did you have for Mama? So, to your point of casting somebody that we already know as Dora the Explorer, <laughs> I did a similar thing. And for Mama Scarface, I <laughs> <laughs> I thought, what if you bring in Sonia Manzano, who is Maria on Sesame Street? The She's fabulous. It's such a great choice. That's Educator great. and entertainer. Yeah one of the first notable Latinos on television at all. Yeah. Talk about a pillar of the community to uphold the, like what would be the representation of Cubans that is like on the straight and narrow that uh, Tony Montana is departing right. from. Uh, I think that's like what. A I think and I feel like you would like very much not want, you would start to feel right away that you don't want him to let her down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You don't yeah, want to, you don't want to disappoint her. It's good. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I think perfect. that's an excellent choice. Yeah. Cool. Then that brings us to our writer and our director. I have separate writer and director. Do you both also have separate writer and directors, or do you have a hyphenate writer director? I got separate. I I guess I didn't really. I kind of forgot that we had to, but uh, I was like, am that's I fine. not the writer and director if I'm recasting the whole thing and making all of the choices? I mean, at this point, we're producers. We're executive producers. Oh, we're very yes. handsy producers. Yeah, I mean, generally for these movies, like, at this point, we've written the movie, we've directing it, we want to be a part of it. Like, yes, in reality, we would have that, but, like, since we're stunt casting in the first place. Yeah. 
Well, um, Sam, yeah. I'm so interested who you, you know, have. I, but I do, so I let's have talk a cinematographer for you, and we'll get into that later, I guess. Because I just you know, cool. I don't have a cinematographer, so we'll just go with whoever that is. Uh, so my writer is someone who's really good at writing like the com the complicated lead and the lead who we root for, but we don't necessarily like. Hmm. He's the writer behind, like he hasn't done all that much, but he wrote The Founder. He also wrote The Wrestler. <laughs> and he also wrote the movie Turbo about the racing snail. Sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> His name is Robert Yeah, Siegel. we're really pulling in the uh, children's entertainment crew here with our Dora and our Sesame Street and our Turbo. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. love I love pitching the Scarface remake as like from the people who brought you Sesame Street, Dora the Explorer, <laughs> Turbo comes Scarface. Nice. Yeah, basically. So that's my writer. I mean, but seriously, well, I, like I put that on because I wanted a third thing. But like the founder and the wrestler, I do think are good comps. Yeah, for this. Roman loves. Oh the man, wrestler. yeah. The wrestler is like one of my all time favorite films. So I would have a hard time arguing with you here. Good. Very, very, very well written film. I fuck, oh, man, I can't, probably shouldn't curse on this show, but oh my God. I have I sworn so much already. Oh, I don't uh, even know if I did. Well, my probably. my love for the wrestler goes so deep, and I did really think the founder had an excellent script. I thought so too. I thought uh, so the founder was really underrated. When I, when I watched it, I kind of thought that I was going to be disappointed because it kind of got swept under the rug. So I was like, oh, it must not be very good. But, and it's, it's a little like, it has a couple problems. It's a little maybe to buy the books for me or to make a like really big impression, but I thought it was good and definitely enjoyable. And I did uh, later learn that that was, that movie was intentionally sabotaged to fail. So cool. yeah, that's victim of the Weinstein stuff, yeah. but literally him Weinstein himself. Weinstein was like, was like I don't like you and the choices you're making. So I'm going to make your movie fail. So great for that. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Uh, Roman, who did you have for writer? Uh, I'm going to cu- go up front and say I love your choice, but I, my choice is a little unconventional in the sense that this person doesn't write for other people. This person uh, writes and directs and is very much an auteur. But I think that in terms of, again, representing these, what we need to represent in this film of being this um, descent into madness that KC talks about, uh, I thought that Paul Thomas Anderson would be a great choice because not only, is, of course, is he just excellent, but the idea of the way that he handled There Will Be Blood, the way that he handles um, imagery. He's very good at writing unique imagery and unique scene scenarios. And he also knows when to pull back and have his characters stop talking, Mm -hmm. which I think is great for Scarface because there's a lot that goes on visually, a lot that doesn't need to be explicitly said. So I just thought that Paul Thomas Anderson would have a great perspective on a lost person, similar to The Master and Joaquin Phoenix's character in The Master, a very lost individual who can't find purpose at all Mm -hmm. i think that that's necessary to the movie so that's why i would choose him but when i chose it i was like well that's maybe not fair because he's mostly known as a director but i have read the script for there will be blood and i think his writing style lends itself to that and maybe just even on top of all that since the coen brothers are currently the ones writing this new one they're also (laughs) you know they have written for other people before but they're pretty well known for doing their own stuff i thought it wasn't totally outrageous so that's why i chose pta but I got to say, Seagull sounds great, so. Then let's go with Seagull. But good choice as well. Cool. All right, so then let's talk about director. I went first for the last one, so you're up. Who's your director? 
I considered many people for this, and I know that I could go and this for was my hours first, talking about who they yeah, were. I know so. what you're going to say, and uh, this was my kind of first impression, too, that I was like, this, I think that'd be fun for me. I know that I would end up leaning into the kind of neo-noir and stuff. Like, it kind of reminds me of American Gigolo and movies like that with the, the, the paranoia of noir and the, like, high style of the... Of, the kind of neon subgenre of that, right? So I also thought of this guy that he's going to say, but I, I think that uh, this guy has proven himself with action scenes. He's proven himself with antiheroes. He's proven himself with the larger thematic, surreal themes, uh, and he can really build a lot of thrilling suspense into a film as well. So uh, for me, I, I picked Nicholas Winding Refn, the director of Drive and Only God Forgives, and you know a plethora of great films, Neon Demon. But I think mm-hmm. he, I think he just has the aesthetic sensibility for it. And also, when you have a writer like Robert Siegel, for instance, when you pair a writer like that who has very solid scripts that are like incredibly yeah. on track, it can help to have a director who likes to pull things more abstract because then you get the dual layered approach. You get the everything on the page keeps the movie in line, but Refn's <laughs> desire to constantly make things weird and different and and zig instead of zag makes him. I think a great candidate to keep the operatic tone and create memorable action sequences. And so. I think that he, I feel like he handles his damsels in distress really well. Agreed. Um, that they're all like full bodied women, even though they're in stressful situations and sometimes self-destructive or sometimes don't have the power to help themselves and need to be, need a hero to swoop in and either ruin their lives or make their lives better or whatever. But that they always seem like full bodied women not just cardboard cutouts with boobs or whatever (laughs) got it good good reasoning to go with him my director i picked because he takes interesting creative directional choices which is the sort of thing we wanted to go with like can play by the rules but also can break those rules i think you got to start kind of in features but like is mostly known as a television director now Where he's directed things for like the Nancy Drew show. He directed a few episodes of Supernatural. But I found him specifically because he is kind of the go-to director for the show Queen of the South. That kind of felt like thematically similar in terms of like someone rising to prominence and also kind of speaking to the, uh, obviously it's a different culture, but like that that style of mm-hmm. paying attention to the culture that you are doing your work in. He's also the director of the Blair Witch Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I wanted to go with Eduardo Sanchez. Nice. So I thought that he would be a fun choice. Since you're both on board with, say the name of your director again? Oh, Nicholas Winding Refn. To be fair, if I was really producing this in the real world, I probably would insist on a Latino director. Yeah, that's another reason why I potentially went with Eduardo Sanchez. Which, to that, you know, it's hard to philosophize all of this right now and theorize it, both the, the casting and director and stuff, because they're so few opportunities for latina artists that you don't you don't know what the like what range the actors have you there are very few actors that you even know or can you know know the names of and there are many directors who get a chance to be able to for instance work with this much money or be able to show off their style and not be very much controlled by a producer so casey which are you thinking roman's suggestion or my suggestion in that case? Um, I mean, I think I'm partial to the just funky neon 
Descent into Madness of Refn, and I think it's you know, for the sake of the podcast that it's something people really know. But I like that you said Eduardo Sanchez's name, and that we all have to go watch his stuff now again and be like, oh yes, there are Latina directors, and they make good stuff. You know? Yes, agreed. Thank you. Good. So then the last thing we have to cover is KC. You had a cinematographer for us. Oh, yes. That was uh, a little bit of a joke, but it can. It wasn't an artistic choice. It was I was doing my research of the history of Jews in Latin America, which is there are a lot of Jews in Latin America for several reasons. There there were a few influxes, the main one being in the 30s and 40s, I think Argentina in particular, but a lot of Central and South American countries took in Jewish refugees in the 30s and 40s. So so I found there's this whole like culture of Latina Jews, I guess, I Jewish Latinos, I don't know. So in my searching of that, I found that Emmanuel Lubetsky is a Mexican Jew, and in fact, Lubetsky is not his last name. Oh, what is his last his name? His last name is Morgenstern. <laughs> wow, I did not know yeah. that. Chivo. Chivo. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, but wow, I mean, well, Chivo is excellent. And that was so. just too good to pass up, man. Morgenstern, like Rhoda, man. Yeah. Oh, man, Amazing. that's crazy. And Lubetsky yeah. is his name. Like, he didn't make it up or anything like that, but... But it's a right. middle name or his mom's maiden name or some something like that, you know. Wow, fascinating. Yeah. Cool choice. <laughs> yeah, I love it. That's great. So that gives us that that's our movie. Let me take you through uh, the cast we have for our remake of Scarface. Tony Montana is gonna be played by Oscar Isaac. Manny Rivera will be William Valderrama. Elvira will be Margot Robbie. Frank Lopez will be uh, Tony Plana. Gina will be Isabella Merced. I'm I'm sure I'm mispronouncing all their names, and I'm suddenly well, self-conscious of it. No, that's not, uh, that's not good, Valderrama. man. Will, Wilmer? Say that, Wilmer Valderrama? Wilmer, Wilmer Valderrama. I wrote William Valderrama. Wilmer, Wilmer Valderrama. Better. Omar is Andy Garcia. Alejandro Sosa is Maximiliano Hernandez. Bernstein, the cop, is Emilio Estevez. Chichi is Bruno Mars. And Mama is uh, Sonia Manzano. All of this will be written by Robert Siegel and then directed by uh, Nicholas Winding Refn and then cinematographed uh, by Emmanuel uh, Lebetsky, nay Morgenstern. <laughs> yes. Wow. Excellent. And yeah. that that's our Scarface. You both going to go see this movie? Oh, yeah. As, I... as long as there's a yellow Cadillac in it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, good. That's a that's our base level uh, thing. Good. Well, we did it. We we made this movie. Thank you so much for being guests on this podcast. Now's the time for you to plug the things you want people to go check out. Oh, yeah. Well, man, thank you so much for having us. It's so fun to so, theorize yeah. about this stuff. And as you said... And I could literally... I mean, I would do any movie is the thing. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's a great platform. So we love what you're doing. We love the show. Oh, uh, good. You're, you're both welcome back anytime. Awesome. Well, in terms of plugging, our current key endeavor right now is uh it's film reframed we are offering classes monthly so there's always uh an opportunity to uh register and learn online through our live webinars and uh course recordings and this month we have some great stuff going on but i'm not sure when you're going to release this so maybe i 
should just say uh, this episode is going to come out towards the end of may possibly even the beginning of june but i think the end of may gotcha so you can well we'll still have some cool stuff going on yeah that's why i was just gonna say i was gonna mention things specific to the next like month and a half's worth of stuff but obviously you can yeah. feel, feel free to ask well, this in june <laughs> it'll be pride month yes yeah tell, tell tell us about pride month yeah so our um our core classes that instruct on film composition and visual storytelling. They are a four-week course that happens on uh, Wednesdays. And for Pride Month, we are going to be replacing all of the filmic examples that we use in those classes with films that are solely directed or shot by LGBTQ uh, artists. So our entire core course of materials in an attempt to balance out the really unfair you know, quote unquote, canon of great films that's established by predominantly white male film school, we are going to be subverting that in favor of celebrating queer artists for their artistic contributions and not just their political or social implications of their films. So we're going to be teaching strictly on the aesthetic merit of what they do. And uh, there'll be a lot to learn from that. So I think that is probably the best thing to plug for us. Sounds awesome. I love it. And any social media for either of you? Uh, Yes. Film Reframed on Instagram. Follow Roman too, probably. Yeah, at Film Reframed on Instagram and at Roman L.C. Martinez. Those are great places to connect with what we're doing with Film Reframed and uh, get some insight into what we have going on. Cool. I love it. If anyone is interested in following me, I am at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H on Twitter. Or you can follow the podcast at Ideal Remake on Twitter or Instagram. You can also join us on Facebook at Ideal Remake or the Ideal Remake podcast. All great places to check out and make sure you're subscribed to find out uh, when new episodes post. Or you can subscribe to the YouTube channel if you prefer to have a a static image in your face also while listening to this. All (laughs) great options. But the best thing you can do for my podcast or any podcast is to go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It's the best thing you can do for any show it is helpful for all of us, for any of us, and it's just just a nice thing to do. Maybe leave some nice words for uh, for some creators that you care about. But yeah, that is Scarface. So I will end with this. What's your favorite quote from the movie Scarface? Ooh, I have one. I wrote it down. Tony is threatening somebody outside of the restaurant that he washes dishes in, or that person is threatening him, I believe. And he refers to the amount of time that something is going to take as faster than a rabbit gets fucked. And I thought that was pretty (laughs) hilarious. So that's it. Faster than a rabbit gets fucked. Drives off. Casey, did you have one in mind? Um, I did not. Let me see. Let me think. I didn't have. I bring one. Here's mine. You can steal this. You know what capitalism is? Getting fucked. Yep. (laughs) That is a great great line there are a lot of quotes about balls which are pretty great but here's here's one that's uh more sincere as like a just a good screenwriting move that i think this i think frank lopez says this he says every day above ground is a good day yeah that is a good one all right i like that too nice uh cool thank you both very much that's it we did it we podcasted